asking for a seat at the table is not enough. It does not work because it comes at their speed, not yours. Now you're negotiating for your rights. You shouldn't have to re- to negotiate basic human rights. This is something that should be available freely to everyone. But that's on paper, as you can see. I have a dream today. Is it too much to ask you to grant us human dignity? Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach? For so many, many years, we were told that only white people were beautiful. You're afraid that if you give us equal ground, that we will match you and we will override you. Black is beautiful. Free Sakangone Dombo, Pawakachero, which means don't forget who you are or where you came from. Welcome to Black for 30. Thank you for pressing play. Um, before we get into the show, as usual, just give those 15 seconds just to. Settle down if you're coming from work or whatever you've been doing, just so you can, uh, I guess we can all focus uh, before we get into this conversation. And the 15 seconds starts now. Welcome to this movement of consciousness that is Black for 30. So tonight we're we're trying out, uh, I mean, I say try now, but really we, we've kind of decided on this being a thing. Um, Black in Time, which is basically a history series. So the idea will be to deep dive into certain figures within black history who were influential or impactful for whatever reason. Um, So basically like a buyer. So today's the first one. And uh, we're talking about Ames Cesare, who was an intellectual politician, an activist, um, originally from Martinique, um, and he died at the age of uh, 90, 94, I think it was. Um, so his work to a degree was contradictory, right? Um, on one hand, as a poet, an author, he was instrumental in as far as the revolutionary movement called Negritude. And this movement basically helped unite French-speaking intellectuals across the Caribbean and also um, some from the continent. And this is around the 1930s. And then on the other hand, he followed a political path which led Martinique to go through decolonization by what they called departmentalization. Um, So basically where... Martinique would remain a French colony to be integrated and afforded certain rights and privileges as 
French citizens. So he stood against the arrogance and paternalistic nature of the French in, in, in at least the French imperialists in, in assuming cultural superiority. But he also advocated for the assimilation of Martinicans into French structures. So we'll talk about who he was through his work. Um, and to do that, we got none other than the co-host himself, sir. Hello, everybody. Good to uh, be back again. And yeah, let's get into it. He seems, he seems like a, <clears throat> a very interesting, I guess, character in terms of how stinging his critique was, I guess, of that French colonial culture. Mm-hmm. And yet he then, you know, is obviously fighting for acceptance in French culture. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of an interesting, I guess, contradiction there because when you look at, you know, your Pan-Africanist movements or any other sort of black liberation movement, the main thing is it's us or else, right? Mm. But for him, he was very scathing of, of like the French structure. Um, in what was his work called? Um, the, 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 that book that he wrote, uh, the native. Oh, um, was it memoir or diary of a native land? Return to the native land. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I mean, it was this collection. uh, Basically he wrote it almost in like poem form. Right. Um, and he attacks every bit of French culture, the bourgeoisie that, you know, the entire thing from top to bottom with such cleverness, right. He, he even compares colonialism to Nazism, which I think was, I guess, well, not compares it to, he pretty much is saying that French, like basically any sort of colonial structure is, well, Nazism is, you know, a byproduct of these colonial ideals. It's similar. Mm. They've just, Mm. yeah, you've just been preaching the same thing about, you know, white power, white superiority. It had to come to a head somehow, I think. So someone just took that idea and ran with it and became a little overzealous. So the problem was he then did it to other Europeans. That's when they had the issue. That's basically what he was saying. Mm. Mm. Initially, when when I started reading up on him, right, I didn't understand it. Like in the sense, to to what you mentioned before, right? Because most people you'd find they're either or, right? Whereas he was in the middle, uh, but equally, though, as I was learning more about his works and the different avenues, I, I did get to appreciate um, and at least understand from his perspective why he was sort of, um, you know, playing on both sides, right? So I guess to be, to give a bit of context to people in as far as, because obviously his biggest piece of work is the, the Negritude movement, right? Which also is... Uh, inspired by um, his collection of, of poems, um, the, the return to to my native land, right? So mm-hmm. that so the the, the negritude name in itself came from the the book. I think it was in one of his actual poems that where um, he he sort of coined that term, right? And he was like an anti 
the book itself is like an anti-colonial movement. Um, sorry, negritude is 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 an anti-colonial movement, right? And he founded it together with um, Leopold Senghor, his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, but, but the, the the three main characters is so there's him, and then there's Leon Damas, um, and then there's uh, Leopold <laughs> Senghor, I think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And the movement began amongst the French-speaking African and Caribbean writers, and they essentially intended to protest French colonial rule and reclaim the cultural identity and values of of Africans. Right. Um, mm. Part of the movement was actually influenced by the Harlem Renaissance, which, which when you look at history, you kind of see that's how a lot of these movements are. Right. One is birthed because of another. Um, and yeah. one of the key things I, I did appreciate <clears throat> about the movement is how he didn't want to overly theorize it. Um, so above all for him, it was about the the black consciousness. Right. And because around then, in at least in the Caribbeans, black, blacks had developed this inferiority complex. So, you know, they were continually having to search for their identity to understand who they are and, and try to go back to their cultural roots, so to speak. So, mm. you know, how is it that we memorialize all of these events, right? And respectfully so. Um, yet categorically most ha- never actually achieved their goals, right? Like it, <laughs> they seem to all come and go, which makes me question, like of late specifically, what are we missing? Because we've had so many, so many revolutions across the years and in, in, in different locations, right? By black people. Yeah. Some have been successful um to a to a degree and others haven't but ultimately all have been trying to achieve the same thing yet here we still are in 2023 well look i don't i don't think that um some of these are trying to achieve the same thing i think there's a very clear difference between the negritude movement of of Cezaire and and let's say the Pan-African movement, uh, Pan-Africanist movement of Marcus Garvey, for one. They both came from the Caribbean, right? But one came from a French colony, the other one from a British colony. Um, and that, that just off of study Césaire's life, it doesn't seem like at any point in time he was ever, well, one, he never visited Africa, which is an interesting I guess tidbit in and of itself, or in the very least, he never had a meaningful visit there if he did in fact go. I haven't read anything mm-hmm. that is suggested out otherwise, but it doesn't seem like he was partial to any sort of movement and or mentioned any other sort of African leaders or any sort of influences outside of the Francophile countries, right? Like he's... His movement is it's 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 a soft movement, I think I can call it. He's very much a respectful like he's an intellect, he's not a he's not a revolutionary. Mm. I think he was just more of trying to get his feelings out about 
where he grew up. So obviously in Martinique, you know, looking the way you're looking, I don't think he or any sort of um, black people in that area got the same sort of treatment as, let's say, North Africans did or um, uh, any of the uh, of of the people in those Francophile countries, your Malis, your Guineas, and so on. I think that experience is vastly different because Césaire's rebellion, if you want to call it that, more or less is just an attack on society. He's not upset at, you know, how the French have treated other black people elsewhere. He never really talks about that. He just talks about French society and how it affects him and his growing up and how black people where he's from are treated. It seems very localized. I feel like that's why he didn't really do much outside of go to France to get an education, to come back to Martinique and just sort of lead this little soft movement. Um, mm. well, and So I, I agree with you and I see where you're coming from. So like the, I, I guess maybe to, 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 to reframe that, like Pan-Africanism is more of a, I guess, global, so to speak, right? Whereas his, to what you're saying, was more localized. What I was questioning is that whether it's something that's localized or something that's as global as Pan-Africanism, neither of them have, have achieved what they set out to because the, the, the overarching goal for either, right, for for, for Cizé would have been for the freedom of black people um, in, in the those French islands, right? The French colonies, um, yeah. which was never really achieved. Um, and then you look at Pan-Africanism, it's the same thing. You look at the, um, well, the um, I guess the, the Harlem Renaissance would be slightly different because I... You can say you did to to some degree, right? Your black Panthers, yeah. 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 So, so well, for me, well, so for me, what 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 just makes me curious, right? Is like obviously I do understand that there's external factors and internal factors that account for where we are today, right? And so yeah. my interest is not necessarily the external factors because I think those are commonly known, right? And and mm-hmm. we tend to discuss those a lot. What makes me curious is as black people, where are like where are we failing to to the point where we keep having you know different uh, movements, different revolutionary movements, and cultural shifts come through, but then none that ever truly deliver on on the ultimate goal. For me, I th- I think it's something to do with leadership. Like I think that we've had and still have great leaders in different spaces, right? Um, yeah. However, I don't believe that it trickles down to the lowest denominator. Because look look at Panthers, for example, right? Panthers had mm-hmm. the same thing, where the Panthers was dope as fuck, but once they took out the leaders, it, it, it fell apart because a lot of people didn't quite understand the 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 long term goal um, of what Panthers was about, right? And it made it easy to to dismantle. And I think if you look across 
history and you look at the different movements that have happened as well, it's almost like a similar pattern. And even if it's not a movement and it's just a country, right? Because if you look at you know, how, you know, we've had, just to name a few, you know, Sankara, um, we've, we've had Tongogara. Like there's, there's just been so many yeah. people, right? But then it just drops off and then there's no one else to pick it up. But you know what the common denominator about all those people that you just described mm. is? They've all been killed. <laughs> that's also a good point. <laughs> you see? Um, look, that's the simple explanation. That what you do is you cut the head of the snake. And, you know, if someone as influential as that can be mm. killed, the people at the bottom are like, well, what about me? That's, that's a no-brainer, right? It's a very good and quick way to show people that this is what happens to you when you aspire to something. Now, the issue here is that most of these movements are very much in their infancy, right? The Panthers was still new. Like they, you know, Bobby Seale, Fred Hampton, they were young. They were in the, what, early yeah, 20s? Yeah. If not, anywhere between 18 to 21. That's That's how old they were. The younger generation had gotten sick of the mistreatment. So they grew up, you know, in uh, segregation and things like that. So what we had was this group of just, it was basically, they were almost like rebelling teenagers, but obviously, you know, the fundamental reasons, you know, are far and wide, far and away, you know, deeper and more important, I guess, if you look at it from that perspective. So they were basically like enough's enough. But again, the best way to kill something else is in, is in its infancy, right before it takes hold. Mm-hmm. So if at some point the Panthers could have galvanized the old and the young, they would have had quite a movement. But that's what you see with every other movement. Malcolm X was murdered for the same thing. Just before you gain traction, you stop him in his tracks. What we're coming up against is a very organized social machine that was just feeding off of hundreds of years of just the same ideology. Now that is a lot to want to undo because if you start it from day one and then you convince everyone or the majority, obviously that that's, you know, white supremacy is the thing. It's going to be a very hard thing to undo later on. And they will do anything in their power to keep it going. Look at the institutions, look at the policing, look at, you know, the schools, the disparity is there because it was there from the start. They never hit it. So, the issue is what you're trying to do is undo things that were taught to your grandparents, your great grandparents, and so on and so forth, depending on where you are. So if you're in America, you, you know, that's 400 years of generations that have just been beaten down, right? So it's very hard to gain traction there because you have to undo a lot of the systematic, also the systematic, you know, beatdown that they received on top of the fact that they're still doing it now. Mm. And, you know, you, you, you were never taught these things growing up, right? So this is our generation now trying to change that. And I feel like this is another movement in and of itself that's taking hold, but it's more of a, an awareness kind of movement, mm. right? So it's evolving because each version that they try to kill off, then you have to get smarter and change, mm. right? Mm. And I feel like this day and age, what separates those movements from this or from today's movements is the spread of information, Back then, you had to drum up a lot of support by going to countries and do all this as if you wanted to, but you had to write something. You had to speak somewhere. Nowadays, you can just share off your phone. Mm. 
And that information is disseminated to millions of people instantly. Mm. So what we have now, again, the power of information, but also the power of misinformation. So the problem now that we're having is that it's easy, it's another angle for infiltration. Same as before, because if you look at things like the Black Lives Matter movement, that had traction until some things started to, to fester, like they're being sponsored by, you know, your George Soros, who's a billionaire white man. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it's been, you know, infiltrated by the police, the FBI, things like that. So there's a lot of institutional things that will always try to undermine, yeah. no matter how hard we attempt. Mm. So going back to, you know, Martinique and, 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 and the French, um, or France rather. So one of the themes that I saw around that period that he really is tackling, right, is how the French policies were obviously promoting assimilation of these plantation colonies. So at the same time, you you have black people who were involved in world wars and they were dying for a cause that was not theirs. Um, Whilst being mistreated (laughs) on that same battlefield, you know? Yeah. So on paper, (laughs) the policies were based on equality, of course. Um, However, there were always, (laughs) there was always this assumed superiority in, in, in how they then actualized, actualized these policies right so what i'd like for us to explore is the the i guess the key tenets of the movement the negritude movement itself uh you know one one of the first things i i picked up being how they were obviously challenging the the notion that the western culture is superior to to african culture right so yeah the French's justification to to colonize black people was this belief that to help us, they had to invade and displace our culture only so we can assimilate into theirs. So naturally, you know, people have a tendency to like, this is just a, a, a human um, trait, right? We naturally have this tendency mm. to, to make comparisons. Uh, good versus bad, yeah. right versus wrong, right? Um, and in our case, instead of judging ourselves against, you know, a previous version of ourselves, we obviously we tend to compare ourselves a- against other races, and obviously it's so <laughs> because of history, right? Yeah. So that made me want to look into those two concepts of inferiority and superiority complex. Which I found really, I found really interesting. Um, it's you know the dynamic really focuses on. Um, firstly, it's it's fallible. <laughs> like I, I, I of course, yeah. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> and it's based because yeah, when when you think of the, yeah. the superiority complex, right? Start with that, um, and just to provide a baseline, uh, I'll define it in at least as far as I understand it, right? Superiority mm-hmm. complex being when someone acts better than others and that's to overcompensate or escape their own feelings of insecurity. Insecurity. Right? So yeah. to feel superior requires that me as an individual 
um, uh, I, well, it requires that the individual believes that they are inferior, right? Yeah. So it's this false perception of dominance almost because it's all in the head. Well, I mean, obviously there, there is the element where there are systems that then build around it, of course, to, to reinforce that, but it starts from the head, right? And then yeah. when you then look at how inferiority complex is defined, right? It's when a person feels inadequacy, right? Whether real or mm-hmm. imagined, and they have this poor opinion of themselves, right? So yeah. essentially those signs of inferiority have to do with low self-esteem. They have to do with this tendency to overanalyze compliments and criticisms. They, you yeah. know, there's this uh, persistent way of looking for validation and praise from others. So mm-hmm. taking all of that into account, when considering black culture, as you know it, um, yeah. how would you explain the inferiority complex, like at least how you see it in the culture? Well, the best example, I guess, of the inferiority inferiority complex being, I guess, displayed is in the is in the edu- education system of many countries, um, and also in in the laws of many of these countries. Mm. Um, we'll start off in France um, as the perfect example. So. That whole idea of colonialism has not died off, and I think we all know this. It's just shifted. They've now changed it. Now it's called foreign policy, correct? So you have, instead of having a governor of a province in Africa or in the Caribbean or whatever, you have now what's called ambassadors. The titles just changed, but roles essentially are the same, right? So in 2007... Um, if I no 2005, sorry, um, the French government passed what was deemed a controversial law. I mean, when you hear it, it's you you know just how stupid this sounds. But essentially, it was called the French Law of Colonialism. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy, who then went on to become the French president, I think in 2008 or 2009, somewhere there, uh, his party, the UMP, was the one who introduced this or they championed this law. And basically the law just was preaching or was actually setting into um, the curriculums of high school students the idea that French colonialism had its positiveness, had it had its positive sides. So they were like, we don't want to talk about the horrible stuff we've done. Start teaching the kids that there was some good to said colonialism, mm. much to the agreement of no one. <laughs> so, publicly. Um, it, what's it, it right? Look, publicly, mm. there was a lot of outcry. So what it was was, was in response to um, Algeria and the deteriorating relationship that they were having at that time with Algeria. Um, so when colonialism ended back in the 60s, you know, when Algeria gained its independence, there was somewhere in the region of something like a half a million people of a specific ethnic group who, you know, just like pretty much almost everyone in, in, in Africa had 
been chosen essentially by the colonial power to be there. Um, what would you, how would you describe it? Um, you know, the, the, the equivalent of a, of a house Negro, um, but you know, as a whole group, mm-hmm. kind of like the, the Tutsis in, mm-hmm. in Rwanda, how they were favored. They were seen more favorably by the French because of their, you know, lighter skin tone, you know, their sharper features, or was deemed attractive, you know, to European standards mm. for black people. Almost like puppets in a way. Mm. Exactly. So, you know, the intelligence of this system was to, you're, you can't be the face of your own system because then you are the direct enemy. So you put someone who looks slightly like them, but is appealing to you. So then that way you have a buffer between you and the oppressed, mm. right? So you treat these people slightly better and they will do whatever for you um, while you treat the rest of them like crap. And then, you know, basically when you, when you leave or when things are no longer tenable in that system, you can leave cleanly um, and then they're forced to fight amongst themselves. Well, you know, obviously the real perpetrator runs away. Mm. Right, which they've done across many countries. The English, the the, the Germans, the Belgians, they've all done that. So you reap the rewards of, you know, the natural resources and so on. You beat this population into submission. And then when you're done, you leave them to fight amongst themselves, which is evident literally across almost, across almost everywhere in Africa. You just pit two groups against each other. They won't realize that the main problem is you and you get to enjoy the rewards, right? Mm. So the French law was basically just them saying, and this is in 2005, them saying, look, we're just not going to focus on the negative stuff anymore. We're sick of telling our kids that, you know, we were monsters for over 200 years or whatever, however long it was. Let's change it. And that's how some of the people were trying to, to, that's as simple as it was for some people. That was the best explanation that they wanted to give you because who cares at this stage? So these sorts of systems, it starts off, you have to teach. You have to teach the next generation that we were not wrong. We were just taming the savages. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were, you know, unhappy and they needed civilization. We came and gave them civilization. We turned them towards technology and God or whatever else have you just pretty much discounting the entire culture and existence for thousands of years prior. So that's how I see that system being upheld. That's how, to me, that's its best, mm, like the display. best display of, mm. yeah, if you do it for so long and you do it so well and with such drastic results, you know, punishment and so on and so forth, you will be able to raise a whole generation of subservient people who think that they are not worthy. And we are pretty much some of the byproducts of that because our grandparents grew up in that system that's basically saying you are not worthy, you are this, you are that. And, you know, so that then, from the way I see it, right, because that narrative hasn't changed and I frankly doubt it will change if we wait for other people to change that narrative. And so I think it then puts this impetus on us to create and believe in our own 
value, you know, self-value, self-worth. And to 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 yeah. establish our own boundaries in terms of shit that we're willing to put up with and 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 take because yeah, you know, I find that a lot of times we make ourselves, you know, we we'll make ourselves smaller, so we don't offend, so we make others feel, mm-hmm. so we don't make others feel uncomfortable uh, by just yeah. being ourselves, you know, and we spend so much more time trying to derive our our value, our meaning from how other people perceive us. So do you think it's fair to say that and along the way we have, um, and, and I get if we have, right, um, burdened mm-hmm. ourselves with the, the fragility and, and guilt of others and made it our problem. You know, like I, I, I get that it has existed the question today, right, I feel should then be what are we going to do about it? We have to get out of this victim mentality. That's the first thing. Because whenever in a successful, abusive relationship, someone has to believe that they are not worthy of the other person, correct? You have to believe that. You have to be, and that's usually you being told mm. or you being shown that without me, you are nothing. Right. So to uh, according to history books or whatever, white people brought us civilization. At least that was their rationalization of things. Mm-hmm. Right. They brought us civilization. They brought us God as if we didn't have our own concept of religion and so on, <clears throat> because that would be ridiculous. Um, they brought us tools and, and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, the list is endless. Any sort of justification, but you just need the victim to believe that you are correct and the rest is history, as you said. Mm. So we first need to get out of this victim mentality. And I feel like this we are probably that the generation now who is growing up with not so much the constraints of colonialism, but more or less the fact that we have been able to be gifted the opportunity to live overseas where we can sort of expand our knowledge and meet different people and, you know, get a bigger idea of what not just our black experience. Yeah, exactly. So we've been able to travel to a few places. We've been able to, to meet new people and talk about things. So you, you share ideas with black, white, Asian, everything else in between. Right. And you, that helps build a sense of who you are because then the possibilities are endless for you. Mm. And the fact that it keeps coming back to this, you know, liberation, I guess of sorts is, I guess, you know, your way of, saying that you understand that there's a lot of inequality in the world. And the best way to start addressing that is obviously by first being aware of self, being aware of culture, embracing it and showing that no matter where I go and who says what, I am who I am, not by choice, but now by dint of the fact that if you want to make it about that, I will proudly show who I am, Mm. unashamedly so, Mm. right? Because sometimes it, and I was having this conversation earlier with someone else. Whereas I was saying that, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I would not necessarily be having these sorts of conversations, right? Because that was not a frame of mind that I was in. But the older that you get, and if you are a person who's aware and choose not to bury your head in the sand, what you then come to see is that people out there will 
try and sort of force their race upon you and also your own too, you know, with racist taunts and, you know, racist jokes and ignorant questions and things like that. And if you are someone who is, you know, a more like a, who goes more inwards, you know, who searches for answers about yourself, you know, you, you regularly have these, these self-analyses, you then start to question a lot of things. You, you start to wonder why it is that people are so concerned with race. Why is it such a driving factor when we have zero choice about it? So over time, it's something that I've sort of come to be, I guess, in this position where not only I'm aware of who I am, but where I, of where I am and where I've come from and how these things your location and your your skin color affect literally your whole life. You know, if you if you choose to let it, or if depending on which side of the spectrum you are, these things do affect your life, right? If you look at the indigenous people here in Australia, how you know something like being recognized in the constitution has taken how many years, and still now the government won't even sack up and just put it in there because that's how easy it is to change the law, they're asking the country to weigh in on something that has nothing to do with us except Indigenous Australians. And yet we have to put that to a referendum. They're just trying to pass the buck on to someone else, right? But some of us are aware enough to see that they're trying to turn what should be or what is, you know, a very critical point for a specific group's I guess, existence or, you know, their future going forward, considering the atrocities that have been committed. And you're now basically saying, we'll leave it to the group to decide. Whereas the people concerned basically are told, no, you have to wait for the other ones to say yes or no, we recognize you. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot that needs to be done, I guess, in terms of getting out of that victim mentality and Asking for a seat at the table is not enough. It does not work because it comes at their speed, not yours. Now you're negotiating for your rights. But basic human rights do not need to be negotiated according to the World Health Organization, the UN, sorry, right? You shouldn't have to to negotiate basic human rights. This is something that should be available freely to everyone. But that's on paper as you can see. I hope this was a learning experience to adopt and change the way you think and live. The goal is for us, and that includes you, to be able to see ourselves for who we are so we can accept the person in the mirror and begin to value ourselves. Whether you agreed, opposed, or were offended by some of the content, I encourage you to engage with me so we can have positive discussions in trying to understand each other. So send your comments, reviews, or feedback to our Instagram, blackfor30, or an email to admin at blackfor30.com. If you believe someone will benefit from this episode, please share it. When you get to the end of this recording, please subscribe to Black for 30 wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your time. And I wish for you to join me again.